Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of The Blacklist, where I, your host, Mariah, discuss the beginnings, lives, and legacies of Black Hollywood stars who are often forgotten, a footnote, or left out of the narrative of Hollywood's beginnings entirely, something I won't allow. This new season was inspired by the mini summer series, and particularly the final two episodes on films by the prolific African-American filmmaker Oscar Micheaux. I was inspired by his tenacity and his ability to make the kind of films he wanted against all odds, and I figured where there's smoke, there's fire. I was right. Last season, we talked about the lives of six black women pioneers on screen. This season, we're exploring the lives of black pioneers off screen. I'm talking about the rise and the fall of the black independent film movement of the 1900s. This week, we wrap up our season by discussing the man and the company that inspired this entire season and really this entire podcast and who has led me to so many personal and professional discoveries. This week, we discuss the Oscar Micheaux Film Corporation and the fall of the race film industry. There is no way to discuss the intricacies and innovations of Oscar Micheaux's work in just one episode of this podcast. No, that would take an entire season. But I'm going to discuss the highlights and the lows along the journey that made it so historic. Oscar Devereaux Micheaux was born in 1884, child five out of 11 in Metropolis, Illinois, to former slaves, and would go on to be a novelist, silent and sound filmmaker. He came up as a filmmaker at the same time the studio system was born and becoming common practice. He was not a practitioner of it. But he did fill a demand that Hollywood wasn't equipped to fill, and he did so well. Often called the most successful African filmmaker of the first half of the 20th century, Oscar Micheaux produced over 44 films in his career. I don't know if you know that number is shocking, but 44 films from 1919 to 1948 for a black filmmaker is the stuff of legends. Unheard of, unprecedented, and unrepeated. Truly a man in a league all his own. When he was 17, he moved to Chicago to live with his brother and worked as a waiter, but was dissatisfied with his brother's version of the good life. He always wanted more than the scraps that were presented to African Americans. He knew even then that he possessed so much more. He held many different jobs over the course of his adolescence, but after finding no satisfaction in the meager work and in working for other people in general, he felt that it was important to become his own boss. So he opened a shoe shine stand in a popular Chicago barbershop, then decided that he wanted to see the world. So he became a Pullman porter and was able to travel the world and gain a greater understanding of business and make connections with many, many wealthy white people. After a while, he settled as a homesteader in a very, very white South Dakota and worked as a homesteader for a while there. While there, he started watching people and thinking deeply about the human experience. This is what inspired him to become a writer. He went on to work for the Chicago Defender and write articles for local press. He wrote his first book in 1913, The Conquest, The Story of a Negro. 1,000 copies were printed. He marketed his novels door to door when he was living on the farm in order to sell them. The lead character's name is Oscar Devereaux, so despite this being published anonymously, everyone knew who wrote it. But it was his 1918 novel, The Homesteader, that brought him into popularity, gaining the attention of Booker T. Washington and George Johnson of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. They wanted to make the book into a feature film, and Michelle was excited, and he had tons of ideas about how to make this a cinematic experience, but unfortunately... Michelle and Johnson couldn't agree on how involved Michelle would be, so negotiations fell through, and the film never came to fruition under the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. 
but it inspired Michaud to start his own company, the Michaud Film and Book Company of So City. Later renamed the Michaud Film Corporation. He started it in Chicago, and he made a film out of the homesteader himself. This is the film that gave him critical and national recognition and his first commercial success. Released in 1919, it revolves around a man named John Baptiste called the Homesteader, who falls in love with many white women but resists marrying one out of his loyalty to his race. Baptiste sacrifices love to be a key symbol for his fellow African Americans. He looks for love among his own people and marries an African American woman. Relations between them deteriorate. Eventually, Baptiste is not allowed to see his wife. She kills her father for keeping them apart and commits suicide. Baptiste is accused of the crime but is ultimately cleared. An old love helps him through his troubles. After he learned that she is a mulatto and thus part African, they marry. The Homesteader was nearly three hours long, an eight-reel picture, and it was the longest-running African-American picture at the time. He said it was, quote, destined to mark a new epoch in achievements of the darker races, end quote. The film deals extensively with race relations. Unfortunately, no prints of this film survive, and the only way we know how groundbreaking of an experience it was is because all of the surviving reviews say so, especially those praising the performance of Evelyn Preer. Evelyn Preer, born Everline Price, was born in the rural South by accident. Her mother didn't know she was pregnant when she went into labor with Evelyn, and soon her mother would be widowed and forced to raise Evelyn and her two siblings on her own. With the growth of Jim Crow and segregation and racism in the South, she moved north to Chicago, where she met and married Frank Preer, a proprietor of a cafe in the Black Entertainment District. Her deeply religious mother asked her to canvas for the church, and so one day, while crying out, Sinners! Oh, sinners! Come home! She met Oscar Michaud and starred in his debut film, The Homesteader, to rave reviews. Soon, she would be the black community's it girl, starlet of the screen. The New York Age said of this, Very often do our people reach the heights of musical comedy stardom, but seldom do they reach the enviable position that Evelyn Preer holds in the history of dramatic art. Lee Whipper, Paul Robeson, and Clarence Muse all agreed that Evelyn Preer was the most accomplished dramatic actress that our race has ever produced. And a reporter for the Pittsburgh Courier, the widely and popularly distributed black newspaper, headlined the paper's theatrical page with Evelyn Preer ranks first as stage and movie star. In this article, Calvin comments favorably, after a year on Broadway as an important figure in David Belasco's Lulu Bell, and after a long record as a star and leading lady and her present popularity as a phonographic record star, Miss Evelyn Preer, who is also Mrs. Edward Thompson, takes her place in the front rank with the colored theatrical celebrities. Miss Preer is a pioneer in the cinema world for colored actresses. There is much to be said of the work and innovation of Evelyn Preer and her relationship with Oscar Micheaux and of black women's importance and dominance in his films. Her value and influence is felt in all of his work and is not something that can be overlooked. Unfortunately, that's not what we're here to talk about today. On the heels of this success, Michelle heeded Booker T. Washington's call for black economic independence by building your own wealth and continued writing, directing, producing, and distributing his own race films, much to the dismay of censors. The censors worried that his films would cause racial unrest, causing much tension between Michaud and the censors, but he never wavered and opened offices in Chicago and Harlem for his company. I really think he was one of the great filmmakers of the silent era, said Charles Musser, a professor at Yale who teaches film history. Each of his films has a wealth 
of intertextual references that people of the time could have, should have, and perhaps may have often probably didn't take them in and appreciate, which gives his films another level of meaning and impact. After The Homesteader, Michaud released Within Our Gates, and his career would never be the same. Now, as you may recall, we discussed Within Our Gates during our summer film series, so please feel free to go and listen to that episode now. Within Our Gates, 1920, is Michaud's best-known film and the earliest surviving film by an African-American filmmaker. It is often viewed as the director's response to the birth of a nation. The scene with a white man attempting to rape a black woman directly inverts the famous forest pursuit from the Griffith film, while a terrifying lynching scene bravely brought this then-all-too-common practice into mainstream discourse. Southern-born Sylvia Landry, Evelyn Prier, arrives in the North to raise money for a rural African-American school faced with foreclosure. Winning the confidence of a wealthy white philanthropist, Sylvia also becomes romantically involved with a local doctor who gradually learns about her traumatic past. Past, running into censorship troubles in many cities on the pretense that it starkly and realistically creates scenes of white-on-black violence that would incite race riots, Within Our Gates was ultimately released in multiple versions to packed houses. In 1992, the film was selected for preservation by the United States Library of Congress National Film Registry for its cultural, historical, and or aesthetic significance. Within Our Gates focuses on broken promises that Reconstruction offered. Lynching, lack of enfranchisement, land, or equitable education. Michaud's educated people are light-skinned, and the poor, lower-class black are dark-skinned and within our gates, which was representative of the 20th century America and was historically accurate, a rebuttal to the birth of a nation with the rape of the young black woman by a white man and its fallout. Within Our Gates was one of the few race films that actually crossed over to a white audience. And while contrasting Within Our Gates and The Birth of a Nation, one critic describes them as both Griffith's big capital, expensive vision of the American dream, and Michaud's inexpensive revision of the American dream. But after the backlash from Within Our Gates, it was banned and challenged by the censors in several cities, Michaud never again addressed racism so forwardly. But he kept moving forward. Within two years of its founding, the company had put out four films, The Homesteader, Within Our Gates, Symbol of the Unconquered, and The Brute. Now, Symbol of the Unconquered is considered one of Michaud's best films ever. Made shortly after Within Our Gates and drawing on material from Michaud's semi-autobiographical novel, The Homesteader, The Symbol of the Unconquered tells the story of Eve Mason, Iris Hall, a young woman who travels to the north to claim the land left to her by her grandfather. When oil is discovered in the area, the local white population plots to drive all the black homesteaders off their property. As a powerful indictment of racial discrimination as within our gates, Symbol goes even further than its immediate predecessor by addressing the issues of passing and black self-hatred through the character of a mixed-race hotel keeper whose concealment of his shameful heritage has driven him to outright villainy. Although the surviving version of the film is missing several scenes or that were simply lost or cut, including a cinematic standoff where the homesteaders bravely repel a KKK raid, Symbol remains one of Michaud's most powerful and personal works. He created films for the lower class, but above all, they were about black people coming together, like 1925's Body and Soul, also featured in our summer film series. Now, Body and Soul is one of Michaud's biggest box office hits and considered by many to be his masterpiece. 
Body and Soul features the screen debut of legendary actor and singer Paul Robeson in the dual role of estranged twin brothers, one an escaped convict posing as a preacher under the name Reverend Isaiah T. Jenkins, the other a gifted, impoverished young inventor named Sylvester. While scheming to dupe his congregation out of their hard-earned wages, Jenkins falls in love with one of his parishioners, Isabel Perkins, played by Julia Teresa Russell, who happens to be in love with his brother. Sin and Scandal and Last Minute Salvation follow in due course. Featuring one of Michaud's most dramatic twist endings, Body and Soul was yet another Michaud production to run into trouble with censor boards. The film was banned in New York State for its sacrilegious depiction of religion and was only allowed release once Michaud made radical cuts to reduce it to little more than half of its original length. The director's cut is now considered a lost film. It seemed like, despite all of the setbacks and all of the limitations that he faced, that his career could go nowhere but up until 1927, when the film The Jazz Singer introduced sound into the world of cinema. The entire industry was scrambling, trying to adjust to this brand new change, but not everyone was willing to give in so quickly. Michelle was no exception. He continued to make silent films even after everyone had switched over to sound, but he did eventually make the switch to sound and became the first black filmmaker to venture into sound with 1931's The Exile. Now, his sound films are pretty messy and widely panned with the exception of 10 Minutes to Live and The Girl from Chicago. Then came 1948's The Betrayal. The Betrayal put him in deep debt. The production cost exceeded $100,000 and was considered his biggest failure because of the themes and the running time of three hours. And he personally invested a significant portion of money. And when it failed, it bankrupted him, and he was forced to go back on the road selling books door-to-door until 1951, when he died on a book-selling trip. Michelle was the first African-American filmmaker to have his films distributed nationally and internationally. He was in charge of all aspects of the film process, from conception to distribution, and he used black actors of all creeds and colors, often from the Lafayette players, to make his films. He would literally go to theater managers personally and bring actors along with him to act out the scenes to get them to pick up his films. He created the first black gangster film ever made, and actor Lorenzo Tucker once said, he was so impressive and so charming that he could talk the shirt off your back. Often appearing in public in a Russian fur coat and wide-brimmed hats no matter the season, he was quite the character. Now, sure, his films were often made on a shoestring budget, and it looked like it. They were not technically proficient, but... He created work that made America look at itself differently. His exposing the lynch mob as ordinary people in the film Within Our Gates asked America to look at itself and look at what it was doing to its neighbors. He got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame posthumously in 1987, and the Producers Guild of America created an annual award in his name, and cities all over the country hold annual film festivals in his name and in his image. He wrote seven books and directed, wrote, produced, and distributed over 40 films. He once said, I've always tried to make my photo plays present the truth, to lay before the race a cross-section of its own life, to view the colored heart from close range. In an open letter to black newspapers in 1924, he said, it is only by presenting these portions of the race portrayed in my pictures in the light and the background of their true state that we can raise our people to greater heights. I don't know if anyone could say it better. Thomas Cripps had this to say about the predicament of the independent black filmmakers. He said, 
The marketing efforts of the both Birth of a Race Company and the Lincoln Motion Picture Company revealed the hazards of distributing movies outside of established Hollywood channels. Hollywood had become an oligarchy that controlled almost all aspects of American filmmaking. All independent companies, whether B producers on Hollywood's Poverty Row, Yiddish movie makers in Manhattan, or race movie makers, suffered from both a lack of capital and outlets for sufficient distribution. Even in the peak race film years, 1921 to 1922, there were only 354 Negro theaters. By the end of 1922, many of them had closed their doors. Many were ill-equipped and made one or no films because they had ideas but not the resources, support, or the know-how to stand the test of time. They didn't have the machine of the studio system behind you. And I'll remind you one more time of the quote from George Johnson. He said, We had to make a picture, then we had to close down everything and take that same man we made the picture with, go out and spend money traveling all over the United States trying to get money enough to make another picture. But we were out of business all that time. They carried their films from town to town to town. The cap on profits that could be made because of the limited number of movie houses that would show black films meant even more. Every single one could mean that you don't make your money back from a film. And film censors made life hard for distribution of black filmmakers' work because they always found something wrong, especially in the South. But it was the talkies that pretty much erased the Negro independent film movement from history because the newspapers were reporting things like, hear the Negro speak for the first time. Think what might be in it, the Negro as an observer of himself, as his own historian. The advent of talkies made Hollywood take interest in black voices and the rise of the black musicals like Hallelujah, which you'll remember we discussed in our second episode on Nina Mae McKinney, was a death sentence for the already struggling independent film movement. But headlines like these made the assumption that this movement hadn't ever existed, and that is what killed the vast majority of these companies. How could they compete with the Hollywood machine now that it wanted what they had? Even though years prior, they had no interest in it. Hollywood capitalized on the use of black actors and talkies because of the audience that grew from it. They exploited them in musicals and films about the South, but for the most part, Hollywood had a monopoly on the film industry, and even independence, like David O. Selznick's Gone with the Wind, was distributed by MGM, one of the biggest Hollywood players of all time. Race films generally ran in small theaters and not large theater chains like Lowe's, which accounted for a lot of the profits. But very few people, with the exception of Oscar Micheaux, could even compete with larger companies. And the Depression certainly didn't help. And whoever was left after suffering pretty much were completely dependent on white people. So the 1930s saw a second wave of black independent filmmakers casting black people in tried and true Hollywood formulas, which is how we get gangster films, etc., etc., But by the 1940s, it seemed that no one was left. After a war, no one wanted constant reminders of how hard life was before. Black people were no exception. Now it was all about progress and acceptance, respect the NAACP, etc., etc., etc. Langston Hughes once said, Where prejudice operates most blatantly against the Negro author is in the areas peripheral to writing in Hollywood. I can't imagine what it was like being Bill Foster... George and Noble Johnson, Sherman Dudley, or even Oscar Micheaux after all that struggling, after the fighting, the traveling from city to city, state to state, just trying to build interest, just trying to create more opportunities, more exposure for your people to see the Hollywood machine suck it up and reap the benefits of your blood, sweat, and tears. I like to think glass half full, though, and think that despite the fact that they knew they never stood a chance, that they thought that one day people would know about the ground that was broken by the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. Hunter Hayes Afro-American Film Company. 
Peter P. Jones Photoplay Company, Posed Film Corporation, Paragon Pictures Corporation, Colored Feature Photoplay Incorporated, Monumental Pictures Corporation, Whipper Real Negro News, The Western Picture Producing Company, The Eagle Film Company, The Royal Gardens Motion Picture Company, The Unique Film Company, Richard Norman's Normal Film Manufacturing Company, David Starkman's Colored Films Corporation, Real Productions, Tropical Photoplay Company, Strand Amusement Company, Aristo Film Company, McAfee Film Company, George W. Broom Exhibition Company, Toussaint Motion Picture Company, Kermar Producing Company, Roosevelt Picture Company, Eureka Film Corporation, McFall Film Corporation, The Heart of America Film Corporation, Duplex Colored Motion Pictures Production, Bacchus Film Company, Famous Artist Film Company, Ben Roy Productions, Lone Star Motion Picture Company, and the Foster Photoplay Company, just to name a few. Thank you all for your valiant efforts. I will never again forget the benefits that we reap because of your work. Thank you all so much for listening this season. Until next time.